Hello, this is the Heart of the Piano podcast, and this is the second in a series of episodes about how understanding brain lateralization, the differences between the two brain hemispheres, can help us with our piano playing and musicianship. I personally can't emphasize enough how useful this information can be for understanding many of the elements of musicianship that are normally considered unteachable, as things that we either have or don't have. Innate talent is one way that people define many of these qualities. But some people may wonder just how useful this information might be in these first two episodes, in which we introduce and discuss the neuroscience of the brain hemispheres. My fellow co-host Jaisa is certainly healthily sceptical. So please do keep an open mind and continue listening all the way through until we get to the third episode of this series, which is more like a masterclass where another friend, Cheryl, very bravely volunteered to play the piano, and I spent that episode demonstrating how I coached Cheryl to apply the concepts from the first two episodes. So, without any further ado, here's the second episode in this series. Hello, and welcome to the Heart of the Piano podcast, where we are exploring the world of piano. I'm here again with Yaisa, and we're continuing uh, last week's session that we were doing on brain lateralization, or looking at the two brain hemisphere, uh, left brain, right brain. So yeah, hello, Yaisa, how are you doing? <laughs> hello, I'm fine, thank you. How are you? <laughs> good, good. And uh, yeah, thank you. It, yeah, I really enjoyed doing it last week with you. And uh, uh, um, you brought up so many interesting points. And I'd like to spend a bit more time this week uh, looking at some of the stuff that you brought up. Um, I was wondering if I should try and sum up most of the main points from last week, but I think it's going to take a little bit too much time. So um, I'm just going to sum up one thing really quickly now from, from last week. Um, I, I do recommend to listeners to go and check out last week's episode um, where you can um, hear everything. Also, there are show notes. The show notes are on the website, which is heartofthepiano.com. If you click on podcast at the top, um, then uh, you can have access to all the show notes. And in the show notes, I write down very briefly, what it is that we covered last time. So there are two brain hemispheres, very, very roughly. Uh, the left hemisphere uh, has a has a narrow sequential focus. The right hemisphere has, has a broader, dealing with lots of things all at once uh, kind of focus. It, there's loads more to it than that. Do have a look at the show notes. I'll listen to last week's episode. And uh, the important thing that I wanted to sum up again, a lot of the stuff that I talk about comes from a book by Ian McGilchrist called The Master and His Emissary. And just to try and really sum this up quickly, his um, theory, which he argues very convincingly, is that there's what he calls a, a winner-takes-all model of whichever hemisphere is dominant. So um, uh, what he argues is that both hemispheres compete to be the one that is in charge. And like I said last week, the analogy is like whichever one is driving the bus, whichever one has control of the steering wheel. And even if one hemisphere only slightly has a very, very slight perceived edge, then that hemisphere is given the the wheel, uh, the the driving, uh, the steering wheel of the bus. And whichever hemisphere is dominant, has a lot of ability to inhibit what is going on in the other hemisphere, particularly when the left hemisphere is driving the bus. So when the left hemisphere is dominant, it's very, very difficult for whatever is going on in the right hemisphere to, to come up in consciousness. It's just suppressed. It's inhibited. Ian McGilchrist argues uh, it's, it's the core message of his book, which is that the right brain hemisphere really is the hemisphere that most of the time should be the one that is the master that is in charge, hence the title of the book, The Master and His Emissary. The right, he argues that the right hemisphere should be the, the master. But we live in an era, in an age, uh, Ian McGilchrist argues, where our culture tells us that the left hemisphere should be the master. Anyway, have a listen to last week's episode because because uh, I talk about that a lot more in there. Uh, hopefully, I'll be talking about that more in this episode. So, um, well, I mean, have you have you got anything to comment on that, Yaisa? Uh, no, I, I quite enjoyed the I quite enjoyed the podcast last week. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. Um, just after reading your notes today, I thought again that 
there's still a lot of research to be done in neuropsychology and and uh, given the inter inter sorry interconnection between both hemispheres um it is difficult or it must be difficult to attribute all this characteristics to one or the other mm. hemisphere only um all this this these characteristics you've been talking about at, at least as an average person like me or um, um a piano student yes. <laughs> can can understand without having gone very deep into neurology um so th i'm just wondering whether uh, ignoring the connection between uh, both uh, hemispheres and the external factors as well you know the external context uh, and sticking to the brain as an isolated organ outside the context um it's a uh, it's cautious it's like a cautious enough approach yes <laughs> uh, and then i'm really looking forward to to those tips those practical tips you were you were <laughs> talking about last week uh because i guess there is a purpose behind all uh, behind this attempt of uh, you know going this deep into the description of uh, both hemispheres yes that, that I'm really pleased you brought that up. And, um, and that's a great question. And that's immediately changed the structure, I think, of, of where I wanted to go. So, as I was saying last week, some of this stuff can get really controversial. And neuroscientists get upset when there's overgeneralization in terms of the left brain hemisphere and the right brain hemisphere. I try and do my best to talk about the two hemispheres um, from the most scientific perspective, with as many of the, the most recent findings uh, as possible. So, for example, what upsets people, what upsets neuroscientists, is, is when people say that the left brain hemisphere does maths and logic, and the right hemisphere is creative and artistic, and, and that just drives people mad, because that's not what it's about at all. And like I said last week, it also drives people mad when you say that someone's left-brained or right-brained, because it's so much more complicated than that. Now, where I think that these hemispheres are useful, and it may be, it may be that maybe in 50 years' time, everything that I'm about to say with the hemispheres, maybe there's going to be a completely new and different understanding and everything that I've said is totally wrong. However, the reason for looking at these hemispheres is because the, the way that Ian McGilchrist talks about them in the book and the way that I understand most generalizations, and they are generalizations, but most generalizations about the two brain hemispheres are incredibly useful for dividing the way that we can perceive the world into two very distinct and very different ways of perceiving and interacting with the world. Now, uh, right now, I'm going to talk about a book that, that I read when I was young called The Inner Game of Music. And uh, this is a massively, in, uh, massively influential book. And uh, it came from a book called, I think, The Inner Game of Tennis and then The Inner Game of Golf. And the point of this book is that when you watch someone playing a, a tennis match, and I love watching tennis matches for this kind of thing, it's not just the game that people are playing with their opponent, but there is an inner game going on. There's an inner battle that we have with ourselves. Um, so, so much of the time when you watch someone playing tennis, there are points where the game that someone's playing just completely goes wrong and, and they really struggle to play at their best. And this is the inner game. It's the inner battle of what's going on. Have you ever read this book, Yaisa? No, I haven't. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's brilliant. You know, it's, it's one of the, the most recommended books for people who are interested in performance anxiety. And it deals a lot with performance anxiety and all this kind of stuff. And um, basically, one of the central messages of this book, which came out decades ago, absolutely decades ago, is that um, there is a self one and there is self two. And, you know, it's been a long time since I've read this book, but, uh, and, and I might have got this the wrong way around, but I think self one is supposed to be the one that's very self-critical, full of, you know, constant mental chatter. And it's, it's the one that gets in the way and stops us really being in a state of flow and achieving what we can achieve. And then, um, state two, self two is the self which just plays effortlessly and beautifully and 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 so the whole book and not only that book but almost every book that I've read that deals with um you know the deep psychology of, of performing and how to how to be artistic and how to perform in 
in ways that are beautiful and how to connect with people and how to enjoy playing and dealing with nerves and all this kind of stuff, invariably, over and over again, comes up that there's kind of two inner parts of ourselves. Uh, there's, there's the part of ourselves which overanalyzes, thinks, labels, criticizes, and then there's the other self that, that experiences, that, that just enjoys it, that's, that's in the flow. And, uh, you know, so many books have, have basically tried to give a lot of strategies for how to be in self two. I, th- I think it's this way around. I'd have to go read the book again, you know, rather than self one. But what I find incredibly, incredibly useful about this model of the two brain hemispheres, uh, particularly in Ian McGilchrist's book, is that it is so clear that this is self one and self two. It's so clear. So by understanding all the quirks of um, looking at, well, what happens when someone has a tumour in the right brain hemisphere and that they've only got a functioning left brain hemisphere and vice versa. And then you can see very, very strongly all the very particular quirks of how each hemisphere works. I'm very excited by this because by looking at these very exact quirks of each hemisphere, it gives you qualities that you can think to yourself, what about if I focus on this quality and cultivate having this quality in this moment in time, then the chances are very high that you will be able to activate that particular brain hemisphere. Because like I said just before, with this winner-takes-all model of the brain hemispheres, if the left brain hemisphere is dominant and you would prefer, or or with hindsight, the right hemisphere is more suited. And and this is something I want to talk more about in this particular episode. In this episode, I really want to look at a little bit more. Why do we really need more of a right brain hemisphere? So if we're in the left brain hemisphere, and it's sometimes very, very difficult to get out of a left brain hemisphere state, if we look at, well, well, what happens when there's a problem with the left brain hemisphere and only the right brain hemisphere is active, if we actually consciously try to bring about some of those qualities, we can actually take the steering wheel away from the left brain hemisphere and give it to the right brain hemisphere. So basically, it's a very waffly way of saying, um, answering your question, that whether or not it's correct, um, I find this useful because... In any, usually, 99% of the time, in any moment in time, usually either our left brain hemisphere is going to be dominant or our right brain hemisphere is going to be dominant. Now, by understanding this model, whether, whether it's completely correct or not, it gives us a whole load of strategies for examining our state of mind and going, is it self one or self two, which is active right now? And depending on which one it is and what's going on, you can then make a conscious choice as to whether you want to stay in that state or whether you want to switch to a different state. So, yeah, does that does that answer your question or have I not quite answered it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. And is there anything maybe that, that I, I wasn't uh, clear about in that? No, not at all. Uh, okay, great, great. Okay. So, so yes, uh, I mean, the, the evidence does seem to be pretty overwhelming at the moment that, that these generalizations about the hemispheres hold. But also, like I said last week, they are generalizations and they're not true all the time. So, you know, for example, some of the things that can be generalized as left hemisphere, right hemisphere actually sometimes can be better explained as front of the brain, back of the brain. Um, so, so they are generalizations and they're, they're not always going to hold. But I think what is useful is to be able to look at the, the general trends because they are useful. Anyway, let's, let's dive straight in. So, um, I said that, um, I'd look at some of the stuff that came up, uh, in last week's, uh, episode and something that I noticed when I was editing, uh, and listening back to what we'd done is that you, uh, um, Yaisa, you brought up quite a few times concerns about how to be in the right kind of mood to do a lot of the stuff that we were talking about. And sometimes, you know, some of the stuff I was talking about, it's like, well, yeah, but, but so much of the time we're in the wrong kind of mood. And, um, yeah, and I, and I wanted to, to address that in case other people had picked up on that. 
uh, who were listening, uh, which is that we will definitely, definitely talk about that in future episodes when we look at other aspects of psychology and things like polyvagal theory. And I'll try and look at that with uh, the two brain hemispheres. But uh, being in the right kind of mood might not fully connect with what we're talking about the hemispheres and i and i just want to check that that's okay yeah it's okay <laughs> okay mm-hmm. uh yeah have, have you got any questions based on the things that that we talked about in the last episode and and things that uh maybe weren't explained fully or questions that you had in your mind after we recorded it no i think uh um, I said what I had to say during the recording last week. Yeah. Uh, okay, so so I think right now, following on from what I was saying just before, how can we use this information in a practical way? And I think already some of the stuff that we spoke about last week, if we look at these two hemispheres as a way of having a map for wherever we are in any moment in time, because um, like I said as well, very often when we are in a left brain hemisphere dominant state, it's very, very difficult to recognize that we're in that state. It's a very unmindful state, if I can put it that way. Um, so when we are left brain dominant and we are in a very narrow focus, most of the time we don't even realize that we are in a narrow focus. That's kind of the definition of narrow focus. Whatever we are focusing on, that is what we're focusing on. How are we going to realize that that we're in that state? So something that I started finding quite useful, and I started using this a few years ago when I was really under particular pressure, when I was performing something that I perceived to be a really important performance or a competition or something along those lines. And um, yeah, like I said before, people who've listened to the podcast in previous episodes know that I talk a lot about narrow focus and wide focus. So um, something I started experimenting with was when I was performing, I would consciously become aware, am I narrow focusing or am I broad focusing? And that in itself can be incredibly powerful when we're performing. And um, yeah, I mentioned this as well last week that um, uh, I know Yaisa through um, a piano meetup group where most people do classical music. And I, I, and, uh, I was saying last week, I think there's something very particular about classical music, although, you know, most music does this to some degree, but there's something about classical music that brings in a, a state of being judged, a state of being evaluated, a, a state state of self-imposed pressure where we go into a very narrow focus and uh, and I think it's incredibly useful to start practicing when we are when we're in our practice sessions when we're learning a piece of music and practicing to go am I narrow focusing or am I broad focusing and um, more than that what does it feel like what does it feel like to the muscles around my eye and what does it feel like to my mind when I'm in a state of narrow focus and this can be really difficult because when we are narrow focusing we don't want to start thinking about the focusing because um, you know let's say that, that we're just um, focusing on a particular bar and we're focusing on what the fingers are doing and we're you know, thinking about all of the techniques that's needed. Um, for most people to start thinking about the thinking, <laughs> it's that the mind instantly just doesn't want to do it because there's already too much going on because that's the problem with narrow focus. Um, anything else that gets added to it is automatically going to feel uh, overwhelming. So something I spend a huge amount of time working with most of my students is sort of very gently coaching and coaxing them into how to become more comfortable with a broader focus, which the left brain usually is kicking and screaming that it does not want to let go of that narrow focus, um, that the, the left brain hemisphere just wants to grip and, and narrow focus. Do, 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 can you relate to this? Um, does the, do, do these ideas kind of resonate with you, Yaisa? Yes, it does. How would, do you, do you think that your brain would rebel if you were practicing or performing and thinking to yourself, oh, 
maybe my attention's quite narrow. What happens if I widen it? Do you, do you think that that would be something that would be possible or, or would you get overwhelmed, do you reckon? Um, to be honest, I usually have to, to work with the distraction more than anything else because I'm thinking of other of work or something else that it's more of a priority in my life than, than the piano. And it's difficult to ah, leave that yeah, aside. Yeah, yeah. And I'm focused yes. on uh, and listen to the music and 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 concentrating in the music I'm playing. But then it, it, it's like yes. reading. Uh, you need a, a little bit of time to to settle and 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 get the right mindset. And then um, with the with the short focus and the and the wide one, I I find. Um, I mean, I, I I don't know if I I am understanding it well, but. Um, I, I get more of a wide focus when I already know the piece relatively well and I can afford yeah, not uh, yeah, yeah. going little by little and, you know, reading word by word, <laughs> note by note. Yes, but, yes. but when I, when I have a relatively, like a relative control of the piece I'm playing, then I can see the whole sentence and, and give yes. a tone to the sentence and start start with the with the tone and then develop the sentence and, and finalize the sentence with a like a a different tone as well as you would do when you speak yes oh loads of really interesting points that i want to uh, look at there um one is that, that and i want to talk about this later maybe perhaps not right now but i think that confidence is very strongly linked to the ability to be able to have a wider focus. And so if we're not confident, it's very difficult to have that wider focus. When we're not confident, that naturally pulls us into a narrow focus. That brings up a whole load of questions and strategies about how to be confident. Now, one way to be confident is to do loads of work on the piece, <laughs> as you were describing. <laughs> But then another thing that, that I think is really useful is to try and figure out how we can feel confident before we've even started working on the piece. And that's where a lot of people have problems. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I don't, I, I don't want to look at that just yet. And then just before that, you, you were talking about when you get distracted by other things going on in your mind. Um, mm -hmm. And that's a really, really interesting one because... Um, you know, the, the kinds of things that you were talking about, like things to do with work or, or things in your life that, that pull your attention away. What kind of focus do you have when those things come up into your mind? Is it narrow or broad? It depends on the, on the amount of stress. <laughs> yes, yes. So <laughs> when there's more stress, what kind of attention is it? It's more narrow. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So stress causes narrowing of, of attention. Now, if we're performing and we're being distracted by, by thoughts and it's really hard to pull ourselves away from those thoughts, chances are that those thoughts have come up because those, those thoughts are causing us stress and anxiety. And so we are in a narrow focus. So whether we're in a narrow focus on the music or whether we're in a narrow focus on other thoughts that have popped into our head, it's still narrow focus. And the answer is still working out how to have a broader focus. So the broader focus will help how to stop having distracting thoughts, because I think that there might be a there might be a fear that if we don't have a fierce narrow focus, that we're going to be distracted by a whole load of stuff. But in fact, the opposite is true. And this is, you know, one of the, the major techniques of Western Buddhism and Western mindfulness and meditation, which is to have what people call um, uh, like a, a, a blue sky mind. And in a blue sky mind, it's like individual thoughts and worries are like clouds. But, but if you just get wide enough to the blue sky, none of the clouds matter. None of the thoughts matter. So when we're playing and, you know, where the things distract us, well, it doesn't matter. It's just a cloud in the sky if, if we're broad enough. So, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, what do you think? 
It sounds good. I will try to put that into practice. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I mean it, it is very difficult. And you know, having said that, there are other forms of meditation which uh, don't get taught a lot in the West, but which I think are absolutely indispensable to musicians. Buddhists call them um, jhanas. And these are forms of meditation where you become very, very absorbed in certain things. So it's like the opposite of that kind of very open awareness. So I'm not going to talk about it all now, but it, but it's not quite as clear-cut as all of that. So sometimes we don't want to be just completely um, aware of everything, but but it's a balance, and and these are things that I'm going to talk about um, uh, as we go on. But but the the one thing that I do think we need to be really careful about is having the wrong kind of narrow focus. That absolutely is, I, in my opinion, the number one thing that holds most people back. And one antidote for that is to be aware of. What does it feel like? Does my mind, does, does my, do my eyes, do they feel tight and narrow and focused? When I see people in a narrow focus, it's like a steely, steely gaze and the, the eyes, um, feel like intensely focused. So for example, here's another thing that, that I, um, very often talk to my students about. When I'm playing, practicing, performing, pretty much the whole time I'm at the piano, I pretty much never fully focus on the keys of the piano with, I think, what people call uh, convergent eye focusing. So, I mean, I see the keys, and there are times when I look down, when I need to jump and uh, move my hands about and do leaps and see what's going on, but I never properly properly focus so that what i'm looking at is razor sharp um if people have been to the optician and you know that feeling when you get a brand new pair of glasses or contact lenses or whatever i never see the the uh, my fingers or the keys of the piano in that sharp way and i get the feeling that most of my students do i think that's a very unhelpful state to to just kind of look in a focused way at what you're doing and what the right brain hemisphere does, the right brain is visuospatial. It deals with um, dimensions and with foreground and background. So, so in other words, when, when you've got a piano in front of you, if you're in a right brain hemisphere state, you can sense, you have a sense of this key is in three-dimensional space in front of you. You move your hand right down up rotate but but yet the piano is in three-dimensional space in front of you and when you're in a left brain dominated state it's more like there is just an abstract graphic of 88 keys just in front of you and there's no nuance to it there's no sense of you know feeling like uh you you have it mapped out in front of you and it's a thing taking up three-dimensional space it's just boom, 88 keys, and you stare at it and your finger goes there. Uh, do, do you know what I mean? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's quite interesting what you're saying, yeah. So I think this is why people stare uh, a lot at what they're doing um, with their eyes where, when they're playing, because they're, uh, from a left brain hemisphere state, you don't get the feeling of, of where these keys are. You look at this, what is essentially a map, you're looking at this map of 88 keys, you stare at it, you go there, and then your eyes direct your finger to that key. And that that's not very helpful. And that's just one of, like, to me, thousands of reasons why we want to sort of gradually ease ourselves out of a left brain state, when we're, certainly when we're performing, into a right brain state. And also when we're practicing, because, you know, like, I will keep saying that there's lots of times when we need the left brain. I'm not saying the left brain is always bad, but we don't want to be stuck there. We need to keep coming back to the right brain hemisphere. And when we're in a left brain hemisphere dominated state, it is most people's mental habit patterns to just stay there and not come out of it. And that is what's harmful. So, so when we're practicing, we want to get a feeling of a three dimensional thing in front of us that we can close our eyes and know where all the keys are. The left brain hemisphere can't do that. So that's just, you know, one of, so many reasons. So, um, uh, sometimes when I talk about, um, narrow focus and broad focus, <laughs> I'm just remembering. So, uh, 
people who listened to last week's episode might remember when I was describing uh, the moment that I came across uh, the, the idea of the two hemispheres. And it came from one lesson when I was teaching somebody um, sight reading. And they were, uh, this, this young girl was basically just staring, really staring hard at, at her fingers, at the note on the page down at her finger, this note in the left, uh, this note in the bass clef, this note in the, in the treble clef. And, and I was sort of trying to describe that, that what you want to do is you want to look at it in the same way that you look at somebody's face. So you not only notice the features of the face, but well, what mood are they in? Um, uh, are they male or female? Uh, what kind of energy do do they have about them? So something that I recommended, uh, it, it's always baffled me when teachers recommend learning to read music by reading the left hand first, then the right hand, and going from the bottom to the top. Have you, is this something you've ever been taught, Yaisa, like reading from the bottom up? Uh, from the bottom. So start... start so, so if you're reading a chord... No, no, no. So, so if you're reading one chord where you have to play a whole load of notes all at once, some people teach that the way to do this is you read the bottom note, then you read the one above it, then you read the one above that. And that's basically how you play difficult things which have lots of notes all at the same time. Now that is totally alien to me, but oh, okay. So, so that is the strategy of some people. It's completely alien to me I because think, uh, I realized guitar, that what I do. A guitar teacher told me to do that at some point, but, but my piano teacher wouldn't know. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> well, there are lots of piano teachers who say that, um, believe it or not. But, but I've realized that, um, what you ideally want to do, and I think that people who, who are good readers, what they naturally do is they kind of just look in between the two staves, in between the treble clef and the bass clef, you just kind of look in the middle and just digest what's going on in the treble clef and the bass clef simultaneously. You might have a very quick glance if it's particularly complicated, but you just, you just look and digest everything all at once. And there are so many analogies to, to reading, uh, reading sentences, reading words, where we don't digest every single letter. Uh, and sometimes not even every single word. And, and actually I read, I read very, very fast. Uh, I read very, very fast because I don't audiate all the words. I just kind of look at a, a, a sentence and boom, it's just all there. I, I don't need to look at all the individual words. And I think some people need, need to audiate it, but, but nonetheless, you know, if, if you can read, chances are you're not looking at every single letter and every single shape within that letter. So, so, so yeah, what, what do you think, Yaisa? When you read, do you reckon your eyes are just kind of somewhere in the middle of both staves? Um, that's a, I, I've never <laughs> thought of that before, to be honest. Uh, I think it must be somewhere in the middle because how am I going to do all those notes at the same time then if I don't do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is yes, the and when I said about the, when I right. said about the guitar, sorry, because then I, I kept on thinking of what I've, I just said. It wasn't about reading the chord. It was about positioning the fingers, <laughs> like starting from below. Okay. And not reading, but it, it, it's got, it's some, there's something in common between both things, as if we uh, as if we struggle a bit to with the bottom notes, even physically or <laughs> mentally. <laughs> yeah, because that, yeah, that's what the yeah. teacher, the guitar teacher, suggested that I started with the, you know, with the bottom note uh, and then kept on climbing up. Uh, but with fingers, mm. not you know, not 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 reading. Yeah, but it made me think that there was something. Yeah. Come. Well, guitar and piano are there. Are, there aren't many instruments where you play the bass, the accompaniment, and the melody all at the same time. And guitar and piano are two of them. And there's not many of them. And also, guitar is slightly awkward because if when you're playing on the bottom strings, you've got loads and loads of ledger lines, which which doesn't help. But um, but anyway, uh, getting out of the tangent of guitar. Um, so the same student that I was talking about, and and in in le- lessons after that, I was describing to her how when you're reading two hands, you kind of need to follow in the middle of the staves so that you can see what's happening in both hands, because this is a very fundamentally right brain way of perceiving things where you're not staring at one individual thing 
you're looking and digesting a whole load of information all at the same time. This is literally what the brain hemispheres do. And I, I don't think any further advances in neuroscience is going to turn that on its head. That is one of the most fundamental differences between the hemispheres. So do you know what this, uh, this student did in, in one of the lessons afterwards? She got a ruler and a pen and drew a line in between the two staves oh, so no. that her eye could follow it and rest on it. <laughs> which is which is the epitome of the left brain. That that is just defeating the whole point. <laughs> now I, I I bring this up because a lot of the time when the left brain is listening to how um, things I'm recommending to my students about the benefits of being right brain. When the left brain is listening, sometimes the left brain tries to achieve these right brain things. You're still using the left brain. <laughs> and, and this is so much of the time what befuddles my students and makes them frustrated, which is all the time like a absolutely stubborn insistence that everything has to be done by the left brain hemisphere. So um, I, I throw that in because that is one of the main sticking point for my students who I try and teach some of these strategies to, which which is a, a, a frustration because of, of, of the left brain hemisphere still just not letting go. So, but the more strategies that, that we look at, the easier it's, it's going to be to, to go into that state. So basically, strategy number one for this particular episode, experiment. Experiment with uh, sensations of, does it feel like um, I, I am in a broad focus? And, and yeah, this is why I brought this up, because sometimes when my students try to do a broad focus, what they do is they narrow focus at a whole load of things very, very rapidly, sequentially. So so if I say to them, be more aware of things in your peripheral vision in a broad focus, they will very quickly just stare at everything around the room, um, but without actually just having a broad focus. <laughs> a broad focus is being aware of everything all at the same time. Yeah, I guess I guess if if knowing if uh, if knowing the um what it means from a cognitive point of view helps to get that wide focus really because um i think knowing the concept doesn't necessarily mean that you can achieve or what you're describing um yes exactly you, you know exactly yes and um the way in particular that our western culture functions is that we really associate what it means to be conscious and aware and thinking with the left brain hemisphere. So the left brain hemisphere is responsible for explicit, conscious. So by explicit, I mean things in consciousness, things that, that are literal, things that, that are just obvious, things that we can put into words. The right brain hemisphere is about the implicit, implicit as, a, as opposed to explicit. So it's about things that, that we have to infer, things that are a little bit more hidden, things that we feel, things that we feel but don't really quite know how to put into words. This is more like the world of the of the right brain hemisphere. So a lot of people start to feel a, a little bit lost uh, over there. And it takes practice. It takes some practice to start becoming comfortable with all of that stuff. So, yeah, one, one of the first things that I wanted to introduce, which is new in this particular episode, because uh, I can't believe I, I didn't talk about it in the last episode. It's one of the most fundamental differences between the brain hemispheres. Now, in the early days of research into the two brain hemispheres, um, the, the understanding was that the left brain hemisphere is responsible for language. And in many ways, the left brain hemisphere is responsible for language. There's a part of the brain called Broca's area, which is in the left brain hemisphere, which is sort of pretty much one of the most foundational core places for language. But there are some quirks to this, because although the left brain is in many ways mostly responsible for the creation of language, you need the right brain hemisphere to understand what's called prosody. And prosody is the rising and falling in pitch uh, of the voice. 
and the getting louder and the getting softer and the, the rhythm and the cadence of, of how we speak. The left brain absolutely doesn't deal with any of that stuff. So when somebody has um, a right brain lesion or a right brain tumour, very often they can completely understand what people are saying from the concepts and the words but they have no idea what the what the feelings are what the emotions are when someone says something in a particular way they they don't they can't understand it by the inflections of the voice that is purely a, a right brain hemisphere function you also brought up um last week that the right brain hemisphere is responsible for metaphor so so when someone has right brain hemisphere damage they can only understand things that are very, very literal, that, that there's no understanding of, of metaphor. And metaphor is really interesting. Um, I'm, I'm very interested in, uh, like I mentioned last week, a, a new field of study called embodied cognition. And so what embodied cognition argues is that to some degree, all language is uh, metaphoric in nature. So, oh, it's so much to try and sum up. But um, can you think of a metaphor? If you think of a metaphor, and then I can sort of, uh, I'll be able to look at that and explain it in terms of the hemispheres. Uh, here's an example for, for a metaphor. Think of somebody that you know well, maybe someone that you've been in touch with today or recently. And then think about some kind of strong part of their character, their personality. Then... Is there a metaphor that seems to really fit that they have a character like something, like an animal, like a something, or like, uh, I, I, I don't know, but just like anything along those kinds of lines? Because uh, I think metaphors are really useful in particular with people. Right. Um, maybe feeling as free of a horse running in a field? Or... Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so as free as a horse running in the field, because we could talk about that using very, very literal words and literal understandings. What, what would be the very literal, unmetaphorical way of saying that, that you feel as free as a horse running about? <laughs> I don't get it. It would be quite difficult, quite really, wouldn't your, it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, uh, and, and in fact, the, the only way that I can think of to describe the feeling, um, of, of, of this, basically, if I'm trying to describe, oh, that person, it, they, they're free, like, like a, like a wild horse, uh, I think would be a good analogy there. Oh, they're yes. like a wild, untamed horse, right? Well, how would you describe that without the metaphor? It would be so difficult. And the way that you describe it would have to be through things that you feel in the body. Um, it, it, it's the kind of thing that that it, you have to describe in the right hemisphere way because the right hemisphere is embodied. It is in the body. Um, the left hemisphere, like, like I said last week, it's it's really disconnected from the body. It doesn't really care much for what the body feels. Um, it doesn't care much for, you know, even having a body. But the moment that we try to describe somebody as, as like, a, like a wild horse... It's, it's the kind of description that the left brain hemisphere would be completely uninterested in because it requires a really strong sense of the body to understand what that means. Because when we think about a wild horse, we kind of imagine what it would feel like to be a wild horse and what the body of a wild horse would feel like. And, you know, the, the, the wind in the mane, you know, in the hair and the feeling of the muscular feeling of running about and, you know, the, the, the pure power of just going wherever you want. And it's all to do with things that you imagine in the body. It's, it, it, it's not something that the left brain can really do. Do you, do you get what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, now what, what the left brain does is it can go, well, I know what a horse is. A horse is a thing with four legs. Um, which has a head that, that's shaped like that. And, and a lot of the time, the, the way that the left brain understands things is by splitting things into categories. So the left brain goes, this is a horse, this is not a horse. <laughs> and this is basically how the left brain understands the world. It, it splits everything into it's a this or a that. 
So, you know, as I look around me, I see doors and I see walls and I see light switches and I see my phone and I see, you know, the, the various different things. And, you know, what, what Buddhism and, you know, other various things, um, teach is that there's a way of perceiving the world where all that can break down. And, uh, in many ways, the, the door becomes indistinguishable from the wall. They're all just kind of uh, part of an interlinked whole. But what the left brain does is it wants to see everything as as a this, as a this kind of a thing, as that kind of a thing. Um, so, for example, the, the left brain hemisphere can see that is a door and that is another door. They are two of the same thing. So where, where I'm sitting right now, there's two doors in front of me. Um, to the right brain, they are not the same thing. They are both unique. There is a, that, that door. There is no other door like, like it. Um, yeah, it, it's nonsense for the right brain to go that they are two of the same thing. They are both completely unique entities. So this is another one of like the, the strong differences between the two brain hemispheres. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. Earlier on, I mentioned prosody. And so language, uh, can be dealt with by the left brain hemisphere and the right brain hemisphere the left brain hemisphere deals with the literal words so basically words um in in some ways we can think of words as labels that we attach onto categories um of, of the world around us so the right brain hemisphere like i said last week the, the right brain hemisphere just has pure raw experience no labels no language so um, the left brain hemisphere's function is to take all of the raw sensory input that's coming into us, all of the experiences that we're having, and sort it into, ah, it's a this, it's a that, it's a this. Now, animals do this. Animals, birds, and, and do this way of categorizing food, not food, uh, good food, um, friend, uh, not friend, all the, you know, animals do this. They just don't have language. Now, what we have as humans is we go a step further and as well as splitting the, the things around us into, you know, it's a this, not a that, we can now attach labels and words onto it. So I can go door, door, wall. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's a very, uh, this is the epitome of what the left brain hemisphere does. But on the other hand, linked in with language is the ability to be Da 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 or da 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 and and they mean very different things, right? And that's the right brain hemisphere. Now, hopefully, it should be really clear that music is all about that prosody. It's all about the inflections. It's all about the the you know. It's it's about the meaning of things which is not literal like when people say that music communicates things that music is a language it doesn't communicate like the way that the left brain does that this is a door this is a although although arguably it can sometimes through association but let, let's not go down that rabbit hole but 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 mostly mostly the way that music works is is through the way that language works in as if you were listening to a language that, um, like, you know, I have no idea, uh, what someone would be saying in Chinese, for example, but I could get a pretty good idea what somebody was feeling and, and whether they were happy or sad and, 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 you know, what kind of relationship they had with the person they were speaking with. These are all things that, that you can get by just by listening to a language where you have no idea what they're talking about. And that's the kind of language that music is. So hopefully this is another strong, strong, strong reason why really we want to be in the right hemisphere dominant state when we're making music have i made a very strong point for that mm. yes <laughs> but it's true isn't it i mean <laughs> yes yes but it's funny because it's so funny because like the left brain hemisphere really does try to justify being dominant so much of the time that um you know so much of the time when i'm teaching 
people are like, but I have to be in this state of mind. And it's so difficult to pull people out of that and go, but, but, you know, music is, is not the, the, this kind of thing where we, we want to be in that kind of state. Now, you know, again, uh, we need the left brain hemisphere. You know, I'm not saying we shouldn't use it, but we just don't want to be stuck there without using the right brain hemisphere, which is what the, the left brain hemisphere can lead us to so much of the time if we're not careful. But I guess that's so, linked to, to the stress and, and to the judgmental thing attached to to learning and and and, and studying and and not just piano but everything in general uh, and then i mean it makes me laugh yes. when you talk about it being difficult for you and your students i, mean, I think it's completely normal for somebody <laughs> who is being uh, observed by somebody else to feel nervous about it obviously it's much easier when yes. you play by yourself at home and you're not watched by anyone who's going to tell you whether you're doing things or wrong or, or wrong or, or, or correctly or, or even if you're not that type of person and don't, don't persist on saying what's wrong or what's good, uh, what's right, uh, you know, they may feel observed anyway. And that's already a, a factor that is yes. going to influence, influence their behavior for sure. It makes me laugh because I, I work with animals, so you, you can't believe how difficult it is to to create mm. a safe environment where a cat feels safe and you can observe he, its behavior without, uh, you know, mm. without excluding um, that external factors are influencing influencing that behavior. So and it, it's pretty much the same with us. <laughs> that that left uh, yeah you know that the hemisphere is always being is always going to be activated when or dominating when when other people are observing us it would be completely non-natural not to have that reaction yes absolutely and i really really want to talk in quite a lot of depth about some of the things that you just brought up in particular when we go on to future podcast episodes on polyvagal theory and self-determination theory and various other things. Yes, it's absolutely massive and huge that when we are being observed and when we do not feel safe. And so there's something in polyvagal theory where, uh, where um, uh, Stephen Porges talks about cues of safety and cues of danger and being evaluated, being observed and being watched to human beings um, are cues of danger, which bring about these things that, that you're talking about. Yes, it's, it's absolutely true that in a lesson, it's so difficult to get people to feel safe in a learning environment that feels safe. Because another thing that I, w that I will talk about, particularly with self-determination theory, is about how the psychological need for competency and to feel competent actually brings about a left brain hemisphere state. Yes, yeah, so basically I totally agree with everything that you're saying. But then something that I want to help my students with is that by looking at all of these things and that by becoming more aware of all of these, even when we're struggling <laughs> in a lesson because someone really feels the, the deep need to show me that they can do it, that they can be competent, which gets in the whole way of everything. Well, the more we look at these techniques and how this all works, there's a gradual process of, of self-reflection and self-knowledge where, where there's a learning. Ah. Oh, Right. This is what that part of me feels like that is being, that possibly feels judged. And maybe my piano teacher actually isn't judging me. Maybe that's something inside that I can have a little bit of control over and that I can start to have strategies of knowing how to deal with. But yes, of course, in the beginning, it's incredibly frustrating and can be difficult, but it's, but it's a, it's a, it's a large scale, long term thing uh, with so many strategies to, to start learning how to undo all those kinds of things. Does that make sense? Have I sort of answered that? Yes, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yes, we're, we're going to run out of time quite soon, but I wanted to, um, uh, in this episode, hopefully there's time, talk more about language. And something else that I didn't talk a massive amount about in the last episode was how the left brain hemisphere deals with tool usage, using tools. Very interestingly, when we manipulate tools, so like, you know, like some obvious ones that I can think of, hammer, saw, a screwdriver, but really, you know, a, a tool is anything that we manipulate 
to do anything in some kind of mechanistic system. And, and I'll talk a little bit more about that word, uh, mechanistic, either today or in, or in the next session. So interestingly, the part of the brain that controls tool usage is in broker's area. It's very, very strongly in the brain linked to language and actually shares a lot of the same neurons and, and parts of the brain. So in, in many ways, language is tool usage which 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 uh, I think is quite interesting. So when we label the world around us with words, it's like a tool. But um so there's, there's there's some quite interesting quirks to using tools. And um so the evolutionary psychological theory for why most human beings are right-handed is because we use tools. And so that there's all kinds of ingenious and clever ways that you can figure out in anybody which brain hemisphere fires up and becomes active when you throw certain um, ideas at them. So you can uh, give them a, a list of concepts and see which brain hemisphere fires up and becomes dominant. And so when, you know, you suggest the idea of using a hammer, for example, the left brain hemisphere will immediately go, me, I'm the one for this job. This is what I do. I use hammers. That's me, (laughs) right? So that's why for most people, they then immediately use their right hand. The, The left brain hemisphere goes tool usage, right hand. Now, what's really interesting is that obviously there are many left handed people in the world. Uh, I, I don't know what the percentage is. I'm going to guess it's like 10% or something. Now, in left-handed people, the left brain hemisphere is still normal. It's still the um, analytic, sequential, narrow focus, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and tool using, the, the left brain hemisphere is still the one that, that uses tools. But through some weird quirk that we don't really understand yet, some people will use their left hand. Now, As we know from last week, when we use our left hand, our left hand is controlled by the right brain hemisphere. But when we use a hammer, the left brain hemisphere then starts to control the left hand. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) And and so uh, in terms of uh, evolutionary stuff... That is going to give those left-handed people a little bit of a disadvantage in certain situations, but it might give them advantages in, in others. Um, who knows? Hopefully in the very few minutes that I've got left, uh, I want to come into, uh, the talk, come back to talking about tool usage, which is that, and this is another thing that, that we can notice, that when there is damage to the two sides of, of the brain, when there's damage to the right brain hemisphere, meaning that all we've got left is a functioning left brain hemisphere, what can happen is that you put something in front of someone and they just grip onto it. They just grasp it and they have no idea. They don't consciously know why they're then taking it and grasping it and holding onto it. And they'll come up with a whole load of elaborate reasons why they're doing it. But they are rationalizations. They're, they're not sort of proper reasons. So what the left brain hemisphere naturally does is it grasps and grips very, very tightly onto things, which is what we do with tools, really, when you think about it in a very generalized, broad sense. And then if you do something similar with someone who has left brain hemisphere damage, so they only have a working right brain hemisphere, they find it very difficult to pick things up and to hold things and to, and to sort of hold and manipulate things. But what they do much more easily is to, using their hand, just sort of do exploratory movements and just sort of reach out and explore and feel and, and discover. So this is another hint it's another clue about what it means to be in one brain state versus another and i do think that when i think about what it feels like to be in a left brain hemisphere dominated state there is a strong strong sense of gripping and grasping and it even influences the kind of language that we use so i'm thinking about some students that i have when i can see that that they're in quite a strong left brain dominated state and if I try to gently coax them out, that they, that, that, I mean, so, yeah, and there's so many students who use different sort of 
phrases with things like, I need to have ownership of this, and I need to grasp this. And, uh, you, you know, even in the language, it's like a, a deep need to hold and grasp and, and squeeze and, and, and uh, you know, yeah, go on. Um, I was just thinking, like, what, what, how, how, how practical the, the left brain is. I mean, if I, um, and how much we need to focus on that when we don't play the piano. I mean, I was thinking of uh, when I first came, you know, of all the efforts I've made to to communicate in English, which is obviously yeah. not my first language, and uh, all the efforts I've had to do over these 11 years in the UK to, to get to communicate uh, fluently with my workmates and uh, other people. And uh, if it wasn't because of that effort and that focus I had in, the, in my left brain. So what I'm trying to say is that practical things in life, like learning the language to get a job in a foreign country mm -hmm. or um, mm -hmm. even having a, you know, facing your daily job, um, surviving, uh, I mean, making it to the shop, uh, knowing how the bank works and all these things that are uh, very uh, much of a priority Uh, to mm. live our daily life that needs to that it I, I mean I understand why we are so focused on on that on that uh, thinking uh, mm. on that way of thinking because it's really practical and and that's a continuous positive reward so if I achieve something using that part of the brain or using those the, those mechanisms then I will repeat that in the future because it got me out of the trouble Whereas the other part, the other mechanism would have, uh, wouldn't have been that practical. So, uh, yes, I just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm yes. probably very, very left uh, hemisphere. But, but, <laughs> probably but, but there a very left hemisphere balance. person. That's my conclusion <laughs> but, about the, about these two yes. podcasts. <laughs> but, 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 but there must, there must, uh, <laughs> oh God, yeah, you'll upset the neuroscientists if you say that. But anyway, we'll, we'll come back to that. <laughs> um, you know, like, um, I, I'm the opposite way around in that I lived in Spanish speaking countries for quite a few years and tried to learn Spanish. And I was terrible at learning languages. And when I look back on it now, I learn, I can see that I tried learning Spanish the same way a lot of my students tried to learn music, which was too much gripping, too much trying to be aware of every single word that I'm using and listening to every single word that's being said and, and too much just sort of getting bogged down in every single Uh, a bit of grammar and word and way, which is why I just was terrible at it. And I think there is a balance in that. And, and, you know, what, what you were saying, yes, we need a left brain hemisphere. We absolutely need it. But what the left brain hemisphere a lot of the time isn't good at is recognizing when it's not the right hemisphere for the job. Some of the time it really is, but with music, so much of the time it really isn't and it doesn't realize because it's too tightly gripping and grasping. And so to give you an idea, it's something that I'd notice in other people and in myself a lot of the time when we're really trying very, very hard. And, and again, I want to talk about this in future episodes, so this concept of intrinsic and extrinsic motivation and how this affects the way that we learn and the way that we play. But, you know, if we're, if we're wrapped in the wrong kind of motivation and we're trying desperately hard to be good and we're we're in our minds gripping and grasping and trying to to play like a tool rather than like a like a, a, a form of language which is prosody you know like that, that, that even our bodies even in our shoulders and our our backs and and the back of our neck and and our heads and the, and the muscles of our face are all part of this gripping striving holding which is profoundly unhelpful but you know it, it is all about balance i'm not saying there can't be left hemisphere and and i want to you know i'm going to keep coming back to this over and over again we need the left hemisphere but we just need to learn no, how to yeah, keep coming yeah yeah i was i wasn't i wasn't contrary to what you said Um, so, you know, we, we do need that. Anyway, I, I know we need to wrap this up. So, yes, we've just covered a, a, a couple more concepts there. This might actually take quite a few <laughs> episodes because there's so much to explore. And I hope that, that people are interested in this. Yaisa, do, do you think that in this episode, uh, I've started to become a little bit more practical in how we can use these things? Do you, do you think that there's useful things here in this episode? 
I think so. Yes, I I find particularly useful the example of the metaphor.、Mm. And also that one about the three-dimensional、um, concept of the or view、yeah. or perception of the piano, rather than the linear one where you see like eighty-eight keys, I found that very helpful.、Uh, and、uh, yes, and, and again, I always think that you know spending some time thinking of something in particular. And today, as the same as last week, has been like、uh, foc- focusing on the well, focusing, right? Yeah, yeah. Talking about、uh, spending time thinking of a narrow focusing rather than the、uh, uh, and the wide focusing.、Uh, that's always helpful because it makes you aware of it. And as you said before,、mm. becoming aware of things may make a massive change. Mm. Mm-hmm. And and then I I really do recommend to people. It might seem like this isn't useful. But I think this is so useful. Just have a little reflect, have a little sort of、um, reflection when you're practicing, when you're performing. Are you gripping? Are you tightly holding?、Um, when you're playing, why are you playing? Are you playing to impress people? Are you playing because you want to be good? And are you really, really tightly holding onto that goal? And sometimes it's so difficult to just let go because that. Itself just immediately glues you into that left brain hemisphere state. So anyway, I'm, I'm going to need to wrap up so that Yaisa can go and、uh, do wh- whatever、uh, you need to do. So、um, thank you very much to all the people who are listening in,、um, and、uh, do leave comments,、uh, do email if you have, if you've got any recommendations or, or any feedback. Please do like us on your、uh, platform of choice and subscribe.、Uh, thank you very much for tuning in, and we will see you next week. For、uh, episode three in brain lateralization and the the two brain hemispheres and the practical ways that we can use this in our piano playing. So thanks very much for tuning in and goodbye. <laughs>